Welcome to the Modern Goat Rider Podcast. podcast i'm billy sanderson i'm tara zajac hey tara how are you doing today pretty good thanks no complaints no complaints fantastic we are uh doing a midday recording and so Mm -hmm. people might be listening to this whatever hours of the day but here we are both in our offices on video looking at each other thinking why are we working and doing a podcast at the same time. But we are because we had a guest who was available during the day. So we took that opportunity. That's what life breaks the form. Completely breaks the form. We're not here with uh, libations, uh, chatting about uh, you know things that uh, make us think. But instead, we're going to do a little update. And then we're going to get into our interview with our guest. Mm-hmm. So Tara, there yes. was a really big event in September in Victoria. And we promoted it with uh, Dave Petanuzzo on a past show. It was called mm-hmm. Disc-, Disc Golf with Dave. So go back and check that one out. But uh, you were a key volunteer coordinator and key organizer for this event. Did you it enjoy was... the event? <laughs> it was really fun. It was fun. It's I think anyone who's helped organize large events, there's a million little pieces, everything from... Does the Wi-Fi extend all the way to this particular spot of this large outdoor farm or not? Do I need to bring a power brick for my cell phone? Are my, is my cell phone the same as other people's cell phones? And do they have chargers? What kind of pens do we have? Oh, uh, the scorecard. Do people want to write in pencil? Because it might be raining out and then and then ink is going to get smudgy. Like <laughs> there are a number, and those, the one, one of the myriad of details uh, that we can consider. But um, I had a really great team that was helping me for my my uh, sort of registration odds and sods section of the tournament. And, you know, it, it was funny. There's a certain point when everyone's starting to get off the bus and things are getting a little hectic and I'm having four like highly intelligent adults look at me and be like, what do we do for this? And it was kind of thing where like, okay, this is the outcome that we need. You figure out how to get from A to B. Like I don't need to micromanage or over delegate all these little steps, you, you guys, I trust you to do it. And they're like, cool. And they went off and did it. So it was nice just to be able to hand it off and not have to walk through every little thing because there's, you know, other little fires that I was helping take care of. Um, big shout out in particular to Sister Lee Campbell because we had two different of those square devices to take money in um, for 50-50 tickets and, you know, whatever, the different contests and stuff that we had. And we tested the night before I tested and then this and that testing when it came down to it, you have a hundred people pulling off a bus in the rain, wanting to start playing disc golf and give you their money. Um, Only one of four uh, cell phones available actually worked to take money on the square through a variety of mysterious reasons. And that was Lee's phone. So poor Lee, every time someone wanted to buy something, we had to track her down with her phone to be our human uh, cash register 
for all of that, but she took that with grace. Um, yeah, all in all a good day, about 10 hours in the rain, but uh, a light West Coast rain. If you've been here before, it's it wasn't blowing. It was just, you know, you're in your proper attire and you, you're on the West Coast, so you deal with it. Lots of smiles, lots of good music. Um, end of the day, we brought in about $32,000. Um, so, you know, proceeds went to charities, including Mary's Farm, and that's um, a therapeutic farm out uh, on the peninsula here in the Victoria region. And then um, more money, you know, uh, the other half of the, the donation money went to um, the Vancouver Island crisis line. So topical always, but most more so now I would say with COVID. So two really good charities and just, you know, lots of FLT. We had a, a volunteer who had a station outside and she decided to bring a music festival to us with her little station. And she had music and fairy lights and lavender spray when you walked by and was wearing a tiger print onesie and, you know, like just, just, just hilarious yes. things all day. It was You're great. Just your regular person. Yep. Just yeah. Uh, yeah. the wonderful Maureen. Love Maureen. Yep. Yep. And, and actually I have to say, I mean, we can go back to the disc golf tournament, but um, the next day was Brewery and the Beast which is a annual event that's been happening in Victoria for quite some time that always sells out. And while it wasn't a, an odd fellows fundraising thing, um, a bunch of us who were at the disc golf tournament saw each other the next day at Brewery and the Beast because um, a fellow who's uh, odd fellows adjacent and I might join uh, C2 um, needed volunteers to pour beer for this outdoor meat and cheese festival. So in contrast to a rainy day, this is a very sunny day. And myself, Russ Campbell, and a few other folks sort of saw each other and gave the head nod and promptly got to work pouring beer to help Scotty out with uh, his beer distribution for this meat and cheese festival and did some of that. So, you know, uh, the well runs deep yeah. <laughs> of FLT yeah, for stuff. Yeah. And, and it was neat just to have a semblance of normal events, outdoor events going on. Yeah, it was very cool. The uh, brewery in the beast does have, as you say, you know, it doesn't have a Oddfellows label on the front door, but there's a lot of uh, inner interplay, I guess, you yeah. know, from everything from the guy who puts the ATMs out there to the people, you know, swinging beer. Um, and, and the uh, collective, uh, Brother the Broncos collective. restaurant, the collective had a really tasty uh, selection of food offerings. Shout out. That's right. So when your lodge grows and you've got your tentacles out into um, into the community, then these events suddenly make their way back into kind of odd fellows to volunteer and odd fellows to put the name. Sometimes they're wearing their T-shirts. I'm an odd fellow. I'm a volunteer. Um, that uh, that that helps, I guess, with some PR and some some name recognition. But yeah, mm -hmm. that's cool. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. Um, the t-shirt I was wearing for this meat thing, because I didn't have an Oddfellows t-shirt, but uh, I have uh, a t-shirt that my dad had given me. He's a dairy farmer, and as a dairy farmer in the industry, you get swag like you do in other industries. Yeah. So some feed company had given him a t-shirt that he passed on to me that says, and I don't know why, I usually wear it normally as a pajama shirt, but this seemed appropriate at the meat festival. It says, easily distracted by cows in large block letters. I'm not quite sure what that's supposed to mean overall, but I thought- I'm, I'm laughing, my headphones fell off, sorry. <laughs> so 
Paul's walking around in a shirt that said he's distracted by cows all day. Again. <laughs> Quite the sensation. Again. But you didn't have Maureen's onesie, your leopard skin no, onesie. No, no, I couldn't. You can only put in so much. So much. <laughs> Well, that's very cool. I enjoyed the disc golf. I was a volunteer as well, and I was the yeah. rover. So I was the annoying volunteer that uh, turns and looks at the coordinator and goes, what do you want me to do? And, um, you know, I I was there on the No Decisions Made program. I don't know if you have a lot of volunteers show up to your events like that. Uh, I think the way you dealt with it was appropriate by giving the end game end result and saying go to it. Uh, but, you know, it was one of those events that if there were chairs for me to put out or stack, that would have been about what I wanted to do. Um, but then, yeah, I ended up working eight and a half hours. I was there until 7.30 like you. We were there early yeah. and we were gone late. Yeah. Um, so before we get to the interview. And thank you for your service. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, you. I know. You couldn't do it without me. I know. Um, we are, we better talk a little bit about our interview, but we also mm -hmm. have some unfortunate news that here in, uh, Victoria, I, uh, so we have one Rebecca Lodge here in Victoria. It is, uh, quite small. And if you go back to our episode, uh, number two with, uh, sister Becky Ald, you can hear the story of, of, uh, the bastion Four mm -hmm. lodge Genesis out of the unity 145 uh, rebecca lodge but unfortunately <clears throat> um, unfortunately sister yvonne uh passed away in august 25th at the age of 83 she was um a dedicated rebecca and she loved supporting children um so a donation has been made um to the joint bursary committee in her memory and she'll be greatly missed and that's from yes unity 145 yes from uh, sister uh Sandra Martin, who one day mm -hmm. we will get on as a guest uh, and uh, we'll have uh, our Re Rebecca's in Victoria represented on the modern goat rider. But today's show is about hockey. Of course, it's about hockey. Uh, it took us 40 shows to get to a Canadian content of hockey. And we have a interview with the author of a book that's a hockey history book. But it's a hockey history book titled The Odd Fellow's Heart. So we uh, got to connect with uh, author Maury Holzman in uh, California. And uh, yeah, he came on and uh, gave us the the what's the deal with this uh, very odd fellow book uh, cover, book cover. And then mm -hmm. inside is uh, pretty much a hockey history book. Well, but it is, a, I think, I mean, it was, it's a neat story and it's, answers to questions I never thought to ask, but in <laughs> all, in all the cool ways. Um, yes. Like what was hockey like before 1887? Well, yeah. I, I, you know, you, you see those, you know what we need a, we need to start a petition to join a, have a Canada heritage moment just for this whole Jimmy Stewart hockey scenario and off fellowship. I think you know so what too. I mean? That would be great. We have the one of the, uh, the guys shooting the, the ball in the actual basket. I mean, come on. For basketball so True. we should do a better one for hockey but um but yeah no it, i mean if anything the moral of the story for our intents and purposes is that the uh the spirit of odd fellowship runs deep and wide and you know folks being in uh an environment where there's the, the type of community that odd fellowship opens uh, or offers rather um can have 
very unintended and unimaginable sort of results. And the gist of what some of the story comes to is the influence of Odd Fellowship um, yields this gentleman to really neat and productive things in his life. And, and hockey is a big part of that. Yeah, and approach, approach the problems that he was faced with, um, whether they were class related or whether they were, um, you know, he, he was an orphan. Um, in the end of the story is, uh, not the end of the story, but the beginning of the story is that he's an orphan. And, and so to use Oddfellow's philosophy to, to be productive, as you say, to get through and advance what he intended to advance, which was the game of hockey. Well, and I think, um, and I think there's a, a real world parallel uh, for present time is that when, you know, he was young and was in need, he wasn't just cast out in the street, his mother wasn't cast out in the street, there was that support for them. And if that didn't exist, where would they be now? And I think you see that in nowadays, if you're wanting to have a critique of our uh, care system for, for youth, because once you're 18, oh, you're an adult, power to you, and you're out may or may not be prepared for that. So it sounds to me like the, from um, what was being said about the book is that the, the safety net of Odd Fellowship community helped bolster uh, this young man so he could sort of develop into a, a young adult with with a bit of a safety net around him rather than just being sort of left to the wolves in 18 whatever in Montreal. That's right. All right, so yeah. let's get to the interview. So we are lucky to be sitting down here with uh, Maury Holtzman, and Maury is a author, a journalist, a extensive history uh, buff on the sport of hockey, and uh, we're going to talk to him about his book, Oddfellow's Heart, and uh, his discoveries of Oddfellowship as he went through writing this book. So welcome, Maury. Thank you. Great to have you. It's hey. Great to Thank you. Um, so why don't uh, we just give you the floor and you do a, a who's Maury and um, kind of talk to us about your writing history and so forth so that listeners have a, an idea where you come from. Sure. I was a, um, when I graduated from college, I was a journalist and worked in the newspaper industry for five years as a reporter, doing all different things, sports, news, police beat. Um, I covered the Rodney King riots in L.A., and that's kind of when I decided I really didn't want to do journalism full-time. It wasn't worth it anymore. Uh, I've always kind of wrote on the side. And when I decided that when I wanted to explore something, I usually wanted it to be my favorite sport, which was hockey related. A lot of, you know, my, this is uh, the odd fellow's heart is my second book. My first book was called deceptions and double cross. It came out to uh, 20 years ago. And I was the, I was the basic, I was the author of it. But I had a gentleman named Joseph Neiferth who did a tremendous amount of research. And I used so much of his research, it felt um, unfair to exclude him. So I put him on the cover with me. Uh, he wrote two of the chapters, I wrote the rest of it. And then I had to rewrite his words so that it made it sound like it came from one voice. So that was basically, you know, so I called The Oddfellow's Heart my second book. Um, Deceptions and Double Cross covered the birth of the NHL. There was a lot of questions, and, and when the experts at the Hockey Hall of Fame don't know the answer, I figure it's worth exploring. And the more I explored, the more I got into it. And the more I got into it, the more I found out. And the more I found out, there was more that nobody knew. So that led to that book, and, and the same process was basically followed with the Oddfellows part. Um, there's been a big uh, 
fights have been, gloves have come off literally from various groups over the history of the origin of hockey. And for 20, for, 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 for 70 years, people have been arguing about where did hockey start? Montreal's taken credit, other cities have taken credit. And about seven years ago, a friend of mine wrote a book about how hockey evolved. And that book was good because it listed all the evidence of where hockey had evolved from, most, mostly Europe, mostly England. But it didn't really differentiate between what hockey they were watching and what hockey we are watching. And if you were to put the two side by side on a split screen TV somehow, you would not recognize it as the same sport. Um, there were so many changes in the 1880s that the game from 1875 to 1887 was just more drastically different than 1887 than it is today. So this book, The Oddfellow's Heart, talks about the people in the one main character who evolved that game, who turned that game from a children's pastime to a sport that's watched around the world. Cool. Where are you located, Maury? I am in uh, Escondido, California, which is a suburb of San Diego. Oh, beautiful. Uh, so t- prime hockey territory. Hockey country, right. <laughs> Although, and again, this goes back to, to people not really knowing hockey history. The hockey history in California and San Diego in particular actually predates the NHL. Really? And that the very last game that the Montreal Canadiens played before joining the National Hockey League was actually in San Francisco. Yeah. So there's a, there's a tremendous amount of history and wonderful stories that have just been lost through time. Wow. Okay, so this is a hockey book. And we have a hockey book author on an Oddfellows podcast. So we're here because the book has got the title, but it's about the characters. So why don't you give us a, um, a, you know, a little bit of a teaser. You still want people to buy your book, of course, but we want to uh, sort of explain who these characters are. Um, so why don't you start with, who, you know, the, the main character, Jimmy uh, Stewart. Yeah. So, so Jimmy Stewart is the main driver between taking hockey as a, a sport or hockey as a recreational activity and turning it into a sport. He was a blue collar kid. His family had emigrated from Ireland, from what we would call Northern Ireland today, um, specifically Antrim. And a lot of the Irish, the the, the Catholic Irish were affected by the, the plagues. The Protestant Irish were pretty much not. They had plenty of food. And so the Catholic Irish, when they flew, when they fled, when they fled Ireland, would go to the main cities, New York, Boston, even the ones that went into Canada went to Quebec City, because that was as far as they could afford to go. Some of the other Irish went deeper in, and there was a big Irish population in Brockville. Brockville becomes huge because it was also the center of the Oddfellow, um, uh, Oddfellowship in the 1850s. The Brock, Lodge, uh, the Brock Lodge became one of the most prominent lodges as the Oddfellow membership started declining a little bit in the 1850s. The, um, both Jimmy Stewart's father and his grandfather were members of the Oddfellows. 
And when Jimmy lost his mother when he was six years old, it was it it, it was his um, his grandmother and family who raised him. So there was a lot of odd fellow um, lifestyle. They they certainly practiced what they preached. The um, in eighteen eighty two. Um, Jimmy Stewart's father got a promotion. In those days, one of the one of the highest paying jobs you can have without being college educated or a professional was driving the train. And that's what Jimmy Stewart's father did was drive the train. Uh, Jimmy dropped out of school. He was in grade 11 and ended up moving to Montreal. At the same time, that was when the Montreal Carnival started. And so the carnival was a the carnival was basically a Mardi Gras for the middle of winter in Montreal. It was, hey, we might be frozen, but we can party. Let's, let's start doing it. And they would build these giant snow castles. And they'd have people that were in snowshoes trying to storm the castle and tear it down. One of the other things is they showed off winter sports, skating, the Canadian game of hockey, the, the, the uh, the British game of hockey that was basically the same. And one of the things that Jimmy Stewart did as a kid, and it's funny today, but back then, again, no border patrol, is when the when the St. Lawrence River freezes over, it's about a four-minute skate to go from Brockville to New York. So kids would, you know, they even though they had an ice arena to skate indoors, the kids would rather be outdoors. And they would skate back and forth across the St. Lawrence. Hey, let's go to New York for lunch, you know, four minutes. You could be to New York and back down in Brockville in less than 10 minutes. Parents wouldn't know you were missing. The, um, <clears throat> one of the things that the locals did was they would put a truck or a vehicle on the banks of the river. And if the vehicle was supported by the ice, they figured that the middle of the ice was okay to be skating on which is why Brockville was ignored by historians for skating because nobody ever died. That's usually where they looked, you know, some 14 year old died. So, oh, they must've done skating here. Nobody died because the locals were smart enough to figure out that if the weight of a vehicle could mm -hmm. be held out at the bank, then the middle was safe. Hmm. And so that's where he learned how to skate. He goes to the carnival and there's a skating race. Nobody knows who he is. He's entering against the Ross family, a very, uh, prestigious sporting family and wins wins the one mile and two mile now all of a sudden he gets friends three months later his dad dies in a horrible train accident saving the lives of hundreds and then the odd fellows were there to uh for him as well so that was his background and he decided that a lot a lot of people in those in those situations uh he had two younger sisters and what happened a lot of the times is that the older boys would leave the house and be on their own, which is what his older brother did. Jimmy, although age 19 and working, decided to stay home and, and help his stepmother and her, his younger sisters and basically became a dad to them and, and, a, and a earner for them. He had plenty of time. He, that's when he uh, worked on the games of rules of hockey. So when, when there's this, so one of the things that you don't mention, but you do mention, is that uh, he's an orphan, an older aged orphan. Um, and 
And Oddfellows had homes for orphans and widows and so forth. But he had a support family because he was moved in with uh, other relatives and his younger siblings were the same. So he wasn't correct. a factor, I guess. Co- well, correct. He, he ended up living with his grandmother, grandfather, his father, his uh, siblings, his aunts. And that was when they were in Brockville. And both the grandfather and the father were members of the Brock Lodge. The, his mom had passed when he was like six. His grandmother passed soon afterwards. And um, his aunts were older, so they, uh, so, so they kind of grew up and moved out on their own. It was at the wedding of one of the younger sisters that his father actually ended up marrying um, one of his deceased wife's sisters. So his stepmother was actually his aunt. And that wasn't, that was as, as weird as that may sound today, that was not uncommon in those days, especially in the land of 100-hour work weeks and Sundays for prayer. And, and sorry, do we know if the, uh, the women were involved in the Rebecca's of the Oddfellows Lodge or any I, of that membership? I do not, I do not know. Um, mm. When I went researching the membership, I really came to a dead end because a lot of the records were lost. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the Brock Lodge closed about three months before I, <laughs> I knew I needed them. Um, but I did try to make find out records, and I just, I don't have, yeah. What I have is definitive was that his father and grandfather were both members, prominent members. Um, there were, when, when his father died, uh, the, the lodge in Montreal and the lodge in Brockville came out to celebrate him. Um, and to help with the family, uh, they took a train ride to Brockville where they buried uh, his father. Well, if we have any keen uh, odd fellow archivists and they figure it out, well, uh, hopefully let us know. We can let you yeah, know. I'd love to know. Yeah, it's there's lots of documentation in the various basements and whatnot. So who knows what's there to help you out? <laughs> yeah. So, Maury, when the... In part of the book, you explain the dynamic or the demographic even of Oddfellows in early Oddfellows in Canada. So for those on the, on the phone, on the listening, I was going to say on the phone, that was wacky. Um, for those listening, it, at this time, Western Canada and Eastern Canada are like... So, so for an American audience, audience who might be listening... Um, before Canada became a country, it was considered Upper Canada, Lower Canada, uh, which we would now call Quebec and Ontario. Everything, everything West was pretty much, you know, who knows what it is. We just, we just want to be concerned because we don't want the United States to grab it. So the Upper Canada, the, one of the reasons that was attractive for the Stuart family to move during the potato famine in the 1840s was that uh, England at that time had hundreds of miles of train track where Canada had 60. So the, the trains were basically Montreal to Ottawa and Montreal to Brockville. They built the bridge in Brockville, which is a, um, which they've preserved as a, um, the bridge in Brockville is preserved as a tourist uh, visit spot, which was the first underground tunnel for, for a train in Canada, I believe. And what they've done is when they built the underground tunnel through downtown Brockville, they were then able to connect up to Ottawa, Toronto, and build the railroad south, south and south and west. 
So that all basically Brockville became the hub. Hence the population moved there to build it. So a lot of things in life is where are you in timing? And his family had absolutely just moved to the right place at the right time with the right skill set to work on trains. Right. And the odd fellows in Montreal were originally mostly a social organization that was almost almost considered a secret society. And when the rich people, all of early, most of early Canada's founders who were something, the Molsons and all that, were all members of the Oddfellows until they actually had to do something. Mm. And then they started realizing that they started, you know, money was no problem. They could raise money easily. But when they had to give their time, they started backing out of the society a little bit. Whereas in Brockville, they took that as an honor to be continued to helpful, to be helpful. So when the Stewart family was in was in Brockville, they were actually also at the where the strength of the Oddfellows were, and that lifestyle went into them. It was, became part of the belief system. So that's interesting how you've discovered Oddfellows because you weren't aware of Oddfellows before. Never heard of them. Never heard of us. So then it, when you are discovering this person and learning about Jimmy, and then you're learning about Oddfellows at simultaneously, what were you, how, did, how were you convinced that Oddfellows was such an important part to Jimmy's life other than just knowing his fathers and his grandfather were members? It didn't make sense why anybody would listen to this guy. You're talking about a country bumpkin with an 11th grade education, going to a bunch of college kids, beating them at their own game with no friends, and convincing them that he was the right guy to change their sport, change their game, turn it into a sport, elect him as a leader of the organization to be the first out organization that, to govern hockey, and then to lead him to be the leader of the of the hockey club of, of the Montreal Amateur Athletic Association, which in society goes, is about as high as you could go back in Montreal in those days. And this is basically a 19-year-old orphan. You know, when you look at the players, when I looked in the history of the players, it wasn't just kids that he was of his own peerage. He, every single person, for example, on the, on the McGill Hockey Club, had a minimum of four servants in their house. Jeez. And if it wasn't for Jimmy Stewart sacrificing, his sisters and mother or stepmother would have been those servants. There was no government help when, when, when people died, when, when men died at an early age. Women weren't allowed to work. They were supposed to stay home and raise the kids. But how do you stay home and raise the kids if you don't have any money coming in and there's no government to help you out with that? Mm-hmm. That's where the Oddfellows made a tremendous amount of contribution to society. And that was the mantra that, that Stuart followed. Basically, if you look at how he put stuff together, it was stuff that was consistent. It was, you know, respect everybody, respect them for who they are, educate, teach, and help, and be active. The more I got into how he was able to convince people to go along with him, the more I saw was the Oddfellows' influence in his early childhood. Well, that is pretty. That is pretty heartwarming, you know, to think that being sort of bolstered by this foundation just gave 
gave him maybe the vocabulary and the emotional vocabulary to go out and be convincing to all these folks and the belief in himself. Right. It's, it's, it's really fascinating. So Maury, when you were doing your research, one of the things that I noted in your book was about athletics and that you had noted that it was a, um, a, a part of Oddfellow philosophy or, um, or activity. Now it, it certainly has dropped off as, you know, the, of our kind of what you see, we still do sponsor baseball teams like uh, Victoria Lodge here in Victoria is the longest running sponsor of, of uh, little league baseball here in Canada. And so they are, you know, they're looking at that, but you mentioned it in the book as part of the lifestyle. My reference indicates to me that was part of the lifestyle in the 1860s, 1870s, that it was also about being active and keeping the kids busy. Staying in shape would be Keep, today's terminology. Keeping them off the streets and <laughs> out of the United States. <laughs> Not so much in Brockville, because like I said, it was a, a five-minute skate. Gotcha. Oh, that's fine. Do, can we talk about the cover? Sure. So if you, if you don't have the book, Maury is holding the book up for the two of us to see it. Uh, it is a, uh, a really cool book. It has uh, old-timey font of its title. And then Maury's going to tell us about the photos on the front or the artwork on the front. And we'll, we'll share it on our, on our uh, Facebook Definitely. page. Yes. Okay, thank you. Yeah. The, uh, so the photo is of the first Stanley Cup champion, which was the Montreal Amateur Athletic Association. And most of the, most of the characters on the cover of the book are included in somehow forming, changing the way that hockey was played to the way that the hockey is played. The element of roughness that was brought in, the element of skating, which was one of the things that Jimmy Stewart brought in. To watch an early hockey game would be to watch would be to watch a bunch of mites. You throw a puck in the corner and 12 people chase it, you know, as opposed to a systematic game where there was actually skating involved. Mm. Um, those trophies are carnival trophies. The badges that they're all wearing on the cover are carnival badges. Um, I had to follow colorized to bring them more to life. The also on the cover is the is the Iron Oddfellows uh, logo that was at the uh, gravesite of Jimmy Stewart's father. And what I really believe is that, and, and why the title of the book is that, even though Jimmy Stewart wasn't an Oddfellow, at least not the records that I could find. His father was a, such a huge influence on him that it was his father's heart that he was following, and 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 hence that's that's kind of the, the title, the real meaning that I'm meaning behind the title of the book. Right. And the logo you're speaking of is the iron iron grave marker that an odd fellows is probably in a lot of old old halls, um, and that would be placed. Uh, similar like a veteran's flag or something like that correct and and they actually just as a side point on that they're on the back of them there's a place for a flag to be held placed right. so every year they would go out and decorate all of those markers with flags um, as an odd fellow uh, event what i thought fascinating especially in reading some of the history it was that unlike most of the other organizations at that time period the Oddfellows didn't care what your religion was. 
if you're Jewish, a bunch of Protestants would come out and give you a Jewish funeral and a Jewish ceremony and, and as a member of the Odd Fellows. It was, uh, in that time, that was pretty unique. I, I, you know, they, they, they treated people as people first. And uh, I think that that was one of the things that spoke to me as, as you know, back to the heart. Yeah, for real. Um, Maurice, so on your discovery, not knowing anything about Oddfellows, you do find out and mention this in the book that when Jimmy passes away, he actually um, dies unceremoniously um, without any real great record. But you you know where he uh, passes away in the city of Seattle because eventually he makes it to Seattle. Yeah, that was interesting. That was that was kind of a strange thing in of itself. Seattle at that point had three daily newspapers. And he had been in Seattle since approximately, or I should say central Washington, uh, uh, Seattle area, south a little bit to Centralia. He had been in there since approximately 1910. So he'd been there 33 years. He was there while the Patricks brought hockey to Seattle. They had no idea. If he went to a game, we have no idea. He wasn't involved. We know that. And he actually had a house, ironically named the Jimmy Stewart house after he died. Not after him, but after a different Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> um, and he lived in this house on Belmont Street on, on Capitol Hill. The He went out for a walk. He had walked about 120 steps. And at the walk... Hard to say exactly where he was going, but it, the walk, it was about halfway to the Oddfellows Hall in Seattle from his house. He had a heart attack on the street and died. Nobody, usually, that would make the papers. And that did not even make the papers until five days later. And then even then, it was like a really small three-line item. When he went out, he went out without identification. So it was basically an unknown. And he ended up being buried in Tequila uh, in an unmarked grave. I, I thought I had a bead. I thought I had a lucky because he had a roommate. And according to census records, he had a roommate for seven years. When Jimmy died, his roommate ended up getting married. And that man's widow was still alive. So I was hoping to find information out. But unfortunately, she's 100. And her husband didn't really share much of any of his pre-life before they got married. And that was, that's a shame. Mm. Sure is. And so the Oddfellows Hall that he was uh, in the vicinity of is the Capitol Hill. Correct. Oddfellows Hall, which is now a restaurant and you've eaten there. I have. Yeah, it's a good restaurant. It's a, a good restaurant. And, and for Oddfellows members, it's it's great to, to look at all the decor that they put up around the restaurant. Um, they, the, the, the building, you can, the, the hall is, is basically attached to the building. You can walk in there and look into the hall. They've got a lot of memorabilia that's up on the walls. So, Maury, are you going to join the Oddfellows? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? <laughs> I, I'm definitely intrigued by it. I, I, it has been something of a interesting discovery, and I and I and I don't even have an excuse not to because there's a ranch in Oceanside, there's a lodge in Oceanside that's not too far from me. Yep, uh, 
I was going to send you their details. Yeah. <laughs> Billy's on it. I'm on my own. Always be closing. Always be closing. Mm-hmm. Well, that is very cool. Uh, wonderful to meet you. I Thank do you recommend well. the book to folks. I have, uh, uh, I don't have an extensive hockey history being, you know, Canadian and all. And, you know, I, I just, you know, I was in love with the Leafs for a while and then that burned out. I don't know, after only 40 years of never making the Stanley Cup. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I'm intrigued by all of this and uh, wonderful to, uh, to get a chance to talk about the book. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, like I said, I, I found it fascinating. Um, I won't claim to have the definitive definitive know all answers, but what I will claim is that ninety five percent of this nobody alive knows. Wow, wow, that's brilliant! Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks to Maury for doing that uh, interview with us uh, midday and all. But uh, Tara and I uh, want to thank you, the listeners. Uh, you know, we don't say it often enough. There's been so many downloads. There's been great feedback from people. Uh, So thank you very much for that. And uh, we wish you all a great day. And Tara and I will be back again soon, making Oddfellows discoveries and seeing the Oddfellowship all around us. Cheers in FLT.